This is Light the Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is where authors talk about movies, television, and everything in between. Beginning as an actor on and off Broadway, Melanie Chardoff is best known for the characters she created on the TV show Fridays, Seinfeld, Newhart, and the cartoon series Rugrats. In a series of essays and stories, she explores her ambition, artistry, and love blunders in her new memoir, Odd Woman Out. The book comes out on February 2nd, and Melanie Chardoff joins us now. Melanie, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. Thank you very much. I don't see any lights, but, you know, thank you anyway. <laughs> well, I tell you, I appreciate you being here. And I, I read your book, and it's a book, it is, is a grouping of essays, like you said in the title, essays and stories about your life. And I'm going to skip over chapter one because I want to keep clear of the censors. Um, <laughs> it, it's not vulgar, but it is a little risque. It, it is a little risque, yes. But but you visit the hustler store, and it's it's you're not a you're uh, you're not old when you do it, but you're I think you turned fifty when you did it. Yeah, I think I was just about to turn fifty, and and my 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 doctor prescribed that I go there for health reasons. Yes, and we're going to we're going to go into detail here, but um, it was like a wonderland to me. I'd never been in a store like that, and the number of items on display just you know boggled boggled my inf my inf imagination. I'd never known that people could think up these things. It was <laughs> such a creative store. I can imagine. And then when you walk. As museum to kinkiness, I think is what I would call it. And you were going through so, so many measures to keep from being recognized. And all of a sudden, when you walk out, there is Larry Flint being interviewed. Yes, for Entertainment Tonight. And I showed up, you know, I spun quickly away from the camera, but I, I show up. You can see the back of my trench coat on the B-roll on Entertainment Tonight that night. I don't think they still have that footage. But anyway, I was so happy not to be recognized. <laughs> I tell you what, but when you were, when you were, now that's only the first chapter. We're going to go through the book a little bit <clears throat> because it starts, of course, with, you know, your life as a young girl. Um, your father did not, did not want you to go into acting. He wanted you to be working at Sears. Yes, at, at least that summer, that's what he wanted me to do. He felt that there was no living to be made in, in acting. He was right for a while. Um, he didn't really bet on my succeeding, really. He just never thought anyone could succeed somehow, except for Barbara Streisand and the people he saw in Ed Sullivan. And um, I kind of defied him. I, I got an offer to do my first paying job which was uh, reprising a role I had done with the New London Opera Company in Connecticut. Um, and I sort of defied him. And that was the moment where he knew I was serious and I knew I was serious because I was willing to go on the train all by myself at the age of 16 and um, stay away overnights for about five, or five weekends to do this play, this musical. It was actually the Three Penny Opera, which is an opera, it's a comedy opera. Um, about the beggars unionizing in uh, old England. And uh, songs like Mac the Knife came from that. It was an incredible score. And it was a wonderful production to be a part of. And so that's when he knew and I knew that I was serious and I was going to risk my myself to do this. And when did you, oh, I'm sorry. No, it just started me on the path more firmly. When did you, how did you get bit by the acting bug? Well, I was um, writing plays 
and I was writing poems. I would always have a, a flair for the theatrical. And um, I guess it was a field trip to our, our <clears throat> local regional theater company. It was called Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. Fantastic repertory company with guests from New York and movies. And, and it was just an extraordinary bunch of people in the company. And I was sitting in the audience, uh, which was three quarter thrust, which makes you far more intimate with the audience than just a proscenium, which is a, you know, when the audience is all sitting beyond the curtain line. There's no curtain in a three quarter theater, it's three quarter thrust. So I was on one of the aisles that the actors choose to exit and enter through. And one of the actors was doing a monologue and came over and touched my head and said part of this monologue for me, to me personally, and sucked me right into the, the show. I felt like I was in the story with him. I was in this play called um, Volponi. Uh, and the magic of that thrilled me so that I said to myself, I want to do this. I want to take people on a magic ride and get them away from their theater seats or their, their homes or wherever they are. Just get them on an imaginative trip. So that was when I was d decided. I was like 10, 11, 12, right in there. Wow. So you really started young. I knew what I wanted and I went after it. I, I um, was really clear. A lot of people didn't know what they wanted to do at that age, but I was really clear that I was going to be a, an actor and maybe a writer and director too. I wanted to do all of that. It's amazing that amazing that when you, your first job you write in the book is that you were, uh, let's, for want of a better term, a go-go dancer. You had a, you had your own costume, but you, that's not what you, designed to do but that well, was the actually, job um it was a very wholesome thing that we were doing um there were television shows like hullabaloo where these lovely wholesome women in white boots and fringe dresses would do these dances um they were wholesome dances and so when i was in high school it was a real kick a friend of mine was with a modeling agency and she and i danced alike and we got hired to do bar mitzvahs in new haven and then we got discovered by phil specter and asked to back up the Ronettes and the Crystals. He was trying to get black girls to cross over to be accepted by, you know, white audiences. And so she and I were wholesome white girls and we danced in these cages in very modest outfits and did all our best steps. And it was just a gas and we got paid for it. I remember you writing saying that, you know, you mentioned Hullabaloo and uh, Shindig was another one that you, another show yeah. that you like to watch. Oh, I yeah. mean, those are those are great shows, and I can see where you like where where you would like them. But uh, tell me tell me a little bit about your early. You know, a lot of people know you from TV, but what were your early TV watching like? Well, generally, I was allowed to watch what my father and mother watched in the evening, and so um, I also discovered this show called Soupy Sales, which may be before your time. Oh no! With the pie in the face. Oh, that was funny. And he was the silliest man I had ever seen. He was my first request when I came out to Los Angeles. My William Morris agents asked me who I wanted to meet. And I said, Soupy Sales. And I got to have lunch with him at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And he, I remember he went to the men's room. And when he came back, he had tucked his suit jacket into his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be funny. I mean, he was a terrific clown. So Soupy Sales and Steve Allen, who was like yesteryear's uh, Stephen Colbert. I mean, they right. looked like they had black hair and uh, eyeglasses and they were witty and talented. Steve Allen could write 
He wrote songs that were made famous and um, did all kinds of pranks. And he and Steve Colbert were equally um, silly men. I liked silly. I liked silly men. My father was kind of intimidating. He had a big temper. He had been in the army for a short time in the Air Force actually. And he wanted to treat us like we were his platoon. My mother and sister and I were expected to respect him, show respect and deference and almost salute when he came into the room. Wow. Um, but Suki was loose and loving and silly. And so Suki Sales, I would say, and Steve Allen, when I, it was a guilty pleasure when I could stay up to watch Steve Allen. When he was on The Tonight Show? Yes, and he was one of the first Tonight Show hosts. I just He was him. the first, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, let me think who else. In terms of women, my mom and I watched a lot of the movies from the uh, recent era, like uh, Carol Lombard was my, my favorite. Oh, she fireball. Funny and beautiful and natural all at the same time. So she was my aspirational role model. You write about meeting Ken, uh, Ben Kingsley. I almost transposed the letters there. Ben Kingsley and yes. Peter Brook. Yeah. <laughs> What a thrill. I was in high school review. I'm sorry. I was in college reviewing for my college arts paper and I got to see Midsummer Night's Dream, which was quite the rave of the century. Um, this is back in 1969 or 70. God, I'm old. And um, I got, because I had a press badge, I got to go backstage and, and Ben Kingsley, who was a very handsome man, a very hairy man, a full head of hair at the time, invited me to come with the cast to this big party that was being held for Peter Brook downtown because I was inquisitive and portable. You know, I was like a 16 year old, um, you know, aspiring actor, theater person. I was just caught up in it. So I got to meet Peter and I had all these things I was going to say, all these witty questions I was going to ask. And then all I could do was just thank him for the incredible production and all he had done. And he really made contact with me in a way no one ever had before really looked into my eyes and took me in. It was like he was searching for something and maybe he did this with everyone. But I just stayed still and allowed myself to be seen in that way. And um, there was something very transcendental about that moment for me. I write about it in the book. It kind of showed me what intimacy could be like and what respect could look like too. I didn't know you, uh, I didn't, this was one thing I found out from your book. And I also, I found out then from the uh, internet uh, movie database page that you were on all my children yes i was just a you know walk on with one line once in a while i played um, a waitress in the cafeteria at uh was it susan lucci and richard hatch no it was karen Gorn gorney and richard um what was his name richard hatch richard hatch yes i was a waitress at their cafeteria commissary oh okay but that led but that part led you on to a broadway play now, the Broadway play didn't no, last no, long. Really, I can't say that. I just auditioned for the, the Broadway play. It didn't really have anything to do with soap operas at all. Right. I know. The, the play was, a I want to say, an avant-garde type of play. Yeah, it was. It was a space age, rock opera, uh, science fiction piece. It was it had, a very complex show. Yeah. But it had Raul Julia. Yes, my big crush. <laughs> I had a love scene with Raul, a very brief love scene. And um, our costumes got hooked together during a preview one night. And there I am lying, you know, torso to torso with my big crush while his fiance was hovering just around us while they <laughs> cut us apart. It was really funny. But yeah, we had a, a stage kiss, kiss and an embrace every night. And it was just thrilling. I had a big crush. 
you're right that they wanted you to do a nude scene, but that was that was not in the cards. No, and so what they did instead was they gave me a body stocking and painted big blue parts on it. I was supposed <laughs> to be a space age creature. I was from another planet. So it actually made me look more um, sexy than I actually was. I was much more buxom, you know, and uh-huh. um, a pretty shade of blue. <laughs> Almost like uh, Avatar. Yeah, kind of exactly like Avatar. I thought, and I saw that later, I thought that too. Now you, uh, you met George Schlatter. Schlatter. Schlatter, Schlatter. <laughs> That's my Southern accent coming out. George Schlatter. And um, he gave you some advice. Well, um, I had been asked by my William Morris agents to uh, put a few of my special material songs that I had written together with some patter and perform at the improv the night that George Slaughter was scouting for the new Laugh-In. Eventually, you know, Robin Williams, I think, was on that new Laugh-In, but it was going to be like the Goldie Hawn, Judy Karn kind of entity on a new Laugh-In. And while I was on stage, the boyfriend I had at the time, who was a crazy, wonderful Greek comedian, I guess he was really stoned, and he walked up into my act and tried to take over, started, you know, doing one-liners with me, so I made believe I was in a big huff and I stormed off. And then he just stayed on stage until Bud Friedman, the owner of the improv, pulled him off. It was very embarrassing. Oh. And I realized this relationship cannot go on. You know, he's not just funny, he's crazy. So I went to meet with George Slaughter in the bar. And he said, oh, you're very talented. A lot of training. I said, yes, uh, ballet, opera, singing, dancing, improvisation, acting. He said, well, your talent shows, is that your boyfriend? I said, yes. He said, get rid of him. And that's when I knew that this man who I had been seeing and laughing at, laughing was tantamount to love for me. I loved people that I could laugh at, like soupy sales. And um, I knew I had to escape from him. So I got an offer to do a, a test for a pilot, a screen test for a pilot in Los Angeles. Then I got to do Wonder Woman. And I, so I went to Los Angeles and I never came back. So some months later, I was doing stand-up at the Improv in Los Angeles, and I heard George laughing in the audience. I knew he was out of my apartment at last in, in New York. And so I- um, This is I, a different George. This is not George Schlatter. No, no, this is George the boyfriend. Sorry, right. thank you. That's for okay. <laughs> and I knew um, I could now sublet the apartment out from under George the boyfriend. And so that's what I had to do. I had to sublet it, put all his furniture in storage. And um, he stayed put in Los Angeles. They didn't have a word for restraining order back in those days. Um, I didn't know that I could have prevented him following me, uh, but I just kept hiding and putting out words and getting some of the other stand-ups at the improv to protect me. And my friend, John DeBellis, who was at the improv in New York, took a truck and moved all my furniture out of my apartment into his parents' house in New Jersey, where it stayed for like 20 years until <laughs> I went and dissolved all of it. Yeah, that's I, didn't what... say I didn't get laughing. <laughs> no, so you know. Yeah, but you got Fridays. I did get was... Fridays, yeah. And, uh, and Fridays, I, now I watch this religiously every night. And a lot, I know a lot of people compared it to Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was... And there were some there were some similarities to it. 
Oh yes, we were t- we were actually created by ABC to be a clone of that show. I was the newscaster, like my friend Jane Curtin. Mm-hmm. Worked with Off Broadway, and uh, but little by little, we evolved out of those cliches and and created our own kind of material. We were all very iconoclastic, you know, Michael Richards, Larry David, oh. uh, Mark Blankfield, all of us, the women on the show. Mary Incredible Edith. talent, yeah. Yeah, we were all having millions of ideas of our own. And needless to say, you know, uh, the louder men got the uh, got the attention, the guys that were in cahoots with the writers. And um, so we, uh, we women really were frustrated. We didn't get much on. That actually was leading to my next question, because you write in your book, you were a female in a male oriented, or maybe I wrote this, that, that it struck me you were a female in a male oriented world. Sure. I mean, all, all women were at that time. Mm-hmm. It was a real locker room. Everything was from the male gaze. Now, has it changed since then? Oh, yes, it has. And it's ever changing now. It's taken a while. Um, but, you know, being a feminine comic was not... Uh, kosher for the guys, the Jewish guys at the clubs. They 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 loved Elaine Boozler. She's a fantastic writer and delivered jokes like guys did. But some of the women had different ideas than just doing jokes. My 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 act was a premise act. It was like a little musical, and I was not a you know a Phyllis Diller type. I was a much mm-hmm. more feminine and soft delivery person. And you know it's taken a while for men to get used to that. Um, and to laugh at it. I remember Jerry Lewis famously said, uh, women aren't funny. And this is after, you know, Joan Rivers and, <laughs> and Phyllis Diller and Elaine Boozler and others were just rolling them in the aisles, you know, and, and, and certainly um, um, Bette Midler, you know, she was singing, but she was hilarious. And so, you were, and you were in, even in the Catskills where, where a lot of Jewish, a lot of Jewish uh, comedians cut their teeth. That's right. In the last millennium, not this millennium, last millennium, right. most com- comedians and especially Jewish comedians cut their teeth in the Catskills. And I did get to do, um, you know, my period there also watching the, the better comics, the more experienced comics, and then being in a musical review with crazy Greek George, which is how he became my my uh, companion for a number of years. Um it was a great training ground. You know, it was just far enough from New York that you wouldn't get reviewed by the critics. Right. You could try stuff out and see if it flopped or flew. So uh, it was a great training ground. Now, I got to ask one question or else everybody's going to say, why didn't you ask her about this? And you know, be. huh? I know what it's going to be. Andy Kaufman. Yes, of course. Everybody asks that. Yes. This is the high point of my career that everybody. <laughs> Was it planned or was it, was it for real? Well, it was an improv, so I can't say it was planned. Mm. Um, but we were told before the show that Andy would not be completing that sketch. He was going to break out of it and that we should just stay in character and improvise along with him. So we made it look as real as we could. Uh, and the crew, which wasn't in on the joke, really thought he was Shanghaiing the show. And they were really angry. And they were going to beat the crap out of him during the commercial break. Uh, wow. That... Um, Jack Burns, our, our head writer producer, said, "No, no, it's just a bit. Go along with it." So, now see, I thought I thought when it was happening live, and I was like, "What's going on?" It was but- happening live, but we sort of knew that something would happen. We just didn't know how to. We were just going to roll with it, you know. We just rolled with it. So okay. I guess it was planned because it was spontaneous, but we knew that there would be a a divergence in the program. Exactly. 
Now, <clears throat> I read, and this is the last time I'm, last thing I'm going to ask about Fridays. I promise you. Um, did Dick Ebersole, who was running SNL at the time, did he come to Fridays and say, because SNL was having, y'all were outdrawing for uh, SNL. Yeah, we were. Did he come and wanted to hire everybody from Fridays? Well, for... he was much more discreet than that. Um, okay. He interviewed Larry David in New York and took me to lunch in New York to talk to us about this. Oh, okay. Larry, Larry said yes. Um, he wanted to write. He didn't want to be on. The, he wasn't going to be on the show, by the way. He was just going to write for it. But Dick wanted me on the show. And I really thought about it for a while. But I was so exhausted and, and tired of being in, you know, needed six days a week. I had no, no life. I had no friends. I had no recreation. And I wanted to be an actor. I didn't want to just do sketch comedy. I really wanted to be like that actor I met at Long Wharf Theater who just brought me into a whole imaginative world. In sketch and comedy, at least for me, I always have one eye outside it, watching how it's going over, timing, timing it for audience laughter. Uh, in drama, you can totally immerse. And I definitely wanted some of that in my career. All right, now you go to, after Fridays, um, you go to uh, Los Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah. And a person sends you, he wants oh, to go out yeah. with you. <laughs> and yeah, it was strange to um, suddenly be in theater after coming off a hit television show because people had access to you, you know, people who couldn't get at you behind the, the television screen and now could see you in person. So opening night of this show called March of the Falsettos, which I, we were doing a West Coast premiere at the Huntington Hartford Theater, which has been renamed many times now but it was quite a venerable establishment. It was like our, our only like off-Broadway legit house in, in Los Angeles, I think at the time. Um, and then um, the opening night, I got a wrapped up bird cage with a carrier pigeon, a homing pigeon, uh, a Dom Perignon, a wheel of Gouda and a bag of bird seed. And there was a note that we read after the show that said, uh, I'm a humble farmer, I own a brewery, in Texas, I'm an enormous fan and I'll be honest and tell you that I am looking for a wife and I have a lot to offer and I'd be happy to come along on your life too. I'm coming to your matinee in eight weeks and if you'll consent to having dinner and meeting me, uh, please put a yes note on the pigeon's ankle and uh, send her back to me. And if it's a no, put a no on the leg and send her back to me and sincerely Dudley. So I thought to myself, I'm not gonna go out with some guy who's bribing me with livestock, but I <laughs> like this pigeon and I so needed a pet. You know, I hadn't had a home life really. And, and I could pet her and, 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 you know, she had a bouncy little head and very soft feathers. She was practically domesticated. And me and the guys just loved her. We fed her every day. Um, I took her home on the, on the days off and she, you know, chirped in my, in my apartment. It was just so homey. It was like something authentic amidst the trappings of theatricality and showbiz. So then after six weeks, I said to the guys, I gotta send this pigeon back with a no note. I'm just not feeling like having dinner with a stranger. So I put a no on her little ankle, opened the window on the third floor of the um, theater and tossed her out my dressing room window. And she sort of flew into the air valiantly. She's flapping her wings, her wing spread made her look so much bigger. It was like, oh, I have no idea who she really was. She's a powerful creature. 
And then she couldn't get a, a loft on the wind somehow. She was fighting the wind. Oh, no. And then she just gave up. And she she plummeted like a stone, you know, going faster and faster. And she hit a Cadillac in the lot <laughs> and was just like a mass of feathers. And I was screaming out the window, screaming. And people in the parking lot were screaming too. They didn't know what had happened. So after the show that day, I had to call Dudley and say, I'm so sorry. I'm terribly sorry, but she has died. She's dead. <laughs> and he said, she was my prize pigeon. I said, oh, we all adored her. She was wonderful. He said, well, you didn't exercise her. She's not used to sitting in a cage for six weeks. I said, I'm just terribly, terribly sorry. <laughs> he said, so was it a yes or a no? And I said, it was a yes. I lied because I didn't want to hurt him further. I said, but why don't I treat you to, to dinner that day between the matinee and the evening? And he said, okay. So he came to pick me up and he was a ruddy farm gentleman, a lovely kind of gentleman in the three-piece suit. I knew he wouldn't be attractive because attractive men never really try that hard at courtship. Mm -hmm. They get by on their looks. So I went to dinner with him. I was so down, first of all, about killing Midge. And second of all, about how would I find love at such a in such a strange time. I was hoping like, like a homing pigeon, I would come home to myself at some point and feel less lonely. So that's that story. But it's it's better in the book, isn't it? <laughs> Midge the pigeon. Uh, yeah, she, she, you know, she, she tried her best, but she, uh, she uh, just couldn't make it on the, I guess she, she gained weight, you know? No, and, probably, uh, I probably did overfeed her. <laughs> You know flowers and bird seed and you know nuts and things like that too well that's and you know but that things happen well i don't know if things happen like that i guess they do um, but i never killed anything you know, <laughs> I, I tell you it's, things happen you know but you mentioned you mentioned about you know getting older and and your and this is a message in your that I took away from your book and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that life does not end when you reach a certain age. Yeah, so far I mean you know if you you stay alive there's still an opportunity to learn to love and that's what I found as I matured. I didn't really know how to learn to love except on stage I could really fake it, but mm -hmm. um, as I matured I learned to love myself and then finally someone else too. Took me a while. I was going to say you met you met your your husband. Um, let's see, you got married when you were sixty. No, I got married. Well, I got menopause, then I got Medicare, then I got married. So I got married <laughs> okay. for the end of my sixty fifth year. Okay, so you were sixty five when you got married, but yeah. um, I was like a girlish romantic. I was still, you know, it was like I was twenty. I felt so joyful and happy. And I wore a wedding gown that I had been given from a television show in which uh, I got married as Miss Musso on Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Mm -hmm. And then my husband had a heart attack and died at the altar. This is the trick my writers played on me. <laughs> and then uh, they got, got me married again and my husband died on my honeymoon. So the designer out of pity for me, a single woman at 40 said, um, would you like to keep the gown? I said, yes, thank you so much. It's beautiful, it's cut to fit me. And I swear to you, I'm going to wear this wedding gown at my own wedding someday. And he said, oh, sure you are, dear. But I kept that wedding gown in a closet with tons of plastic on. And I would check it every year to make sure it was still white, bright and white. And I promised I would wear that wedding dress to my own wedding. 
I was like Miss Haversham in Great Expectations. You know, I was just holding this dream alive. And then, you know, 25 years later, I wore it and it was um, beautiful. I took the shoulder pads out of it, had it hemmed and uh, nobody yelled cut. And my husband lived through the ceremony. So it was really a wonderful day. Tell me about the proposal, because this was a great story. Oh, well, I was getting a little irked because he hadn't proposed after a couple of years. I was feeling really down about myself that no one was willing to make me their wife, to pledge their their trough to me forever. And we were visiting mom at her assisted living facility in New Haven, outside New Haven. And um, mom and I had a little tiff as moms and daughters are apt to do. She liked him better than she liked me really at that time. <laughs> and um, I went into the bathroom in our guest suite and uh, Stan, my husband ran me, it wasn't my husband then, ran me a bubble bath so I could just soak in it and figure things out calm down. And while I was in there, he got into and he asked me to marry him. And at the time, I was wearing a shower cap and glasses naked. I had never looked worse in my life. It was not at all how I pictured it would be. And then I went through a whole stream of consciousness about, well, was I ready to be married? I was 65. But was I ready to love him forever? Was I ready to accept his love for me? I, I have a long passage where I'm just evaluating my readiness. And he said, well, well. And I said, really? You know, I'll never be perfect. And he said, oh, me neither. And we just had a long talk about what we'd been through, you know, the relationships. He had had a failed marriage. He has two wonderful kids from it, which is the great salvation. And we just really went through a lot before I finally said yes. And then my whole world change. It's like in one of those movies where the background moves into the foreground, you know, it's just like everything changed dimension because I felt I could really trust this person more than I had ever trusted anybody before. And he looked so much handsomer. He's already handsome, but he looked so much more beautiful loving me um, and asking me to marry him that he never looked before. And I realized I had been holding a part of myself back from trusting him because he hadn't married me. For me, for a woman my age, that was the kind of emblem of being really loved, was being a wife to a great guy. Well, that sounds wonderful, Melanie. I, and I appreciate you taking time to visit with us today. Oh, no problem. It's fun to talk about these things. Yes. Well, I tell you, I appreciate, I appreciate you being on Lights, Camera, Author. Thank you so much, Jim. And um, thank you for enjoying my book. Every... Every person whose eyes read the book, who is touched by the book to tears or laughter, that's what it's for really for me. It's not about making a zillion dollars. It's about touching people and sharing my experiences from which many people might learn something, my mistakes anyway. Oh, fantastic. And you can find out more about Melanie Chardoff's new book, Odd Woman Out, at her website, melaniechardoff.com. So until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been Lights, Camera, Author.